0: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crude, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. Two films in this year's New York Film Festival lineup take us back to the 1960s heyday of the New York avant-garde. In the main slate, Todd Haynes' The Velvet Underground offers a revelatory portrait of the milieu that gave rise to the eponymous band and its boundary-pushing music. While in revivals, Ed Lockman's restored Songs for Drella captures Lou Reed and John Cale in concert, paying tribute to the late Andy Warhol with riveting intimacy. On Sunday, October 3rd, I joined my co editor Devika Girish for a roundtable talk with Haynes, Lachman, critic Amy Taubin, and the editors of The Velvet Underground, Afonso Goncalves and Adam Kernitz. In our wide-ranging conversation on the stage of Damrosch Park at Lincoln Center, we touched on the making of the two films, as well as the enduring legacy of the historic moment of artistic innovation they so vividly evoke. Stay tuned to filmcomment.com for more coverage of this year's New York Film Festival, both on the podcast and in the Film Comment Letter, delivered to your inbox every week.
1: Me and my co-editor, Clint, who you'll meet in just a second, really wanted to do this because the films that we're discussing today, The Velvet Underground and Songs for Drella, which I hope you guys had a chance to see over the past couple days, we really were taken with them because these are not, and especially The Velvet Underground, is not a film about a band or a person. It's really a film about a time and place and a group of people and what kind of creative chemical reaction happens when uh, all these things come together at the right time. And what happened was in the 60s when this particular group of people came together in New York City at a particular point in time, what came about was the New York avant-garde. You know, this incredible time of creative fertility and experimentation and innovation, which is so central to what we do here at Film at Lincoln Center and which continues to inform the New York art scene and how we see and feel art even today in immense ways. So we're really excited to dig into these themes today to talk about the two films as well as the moment that really fed into their making. And we have an incredible lineup of guests with us today. I'll start with my co-editor, Clinton Crute, who will be moderating the talk with me today. Please welcome the director of the Velvet Underground, Todd Haynes. Please welcome Amy Taubin, who is a contributing editor at Film Commons, a critic... She was a visitor at the factory. You've seen her in the film, her famous screen test. Please welcome the editors of The Velvet Underground, Afonso Goncalves and Adam Kernitz. If you've seen the film, you know that these guys did a legendary job, so. And finally, please welcome the director of songs for Drella and the DP of The Velvet Underground, Ed Lackman. Ed has three films in this year's festival. I mean, just an absolute legend. And we're so thrilled to have you with us today, Ed.
0: Thank you, Devika. Let's just jump right in. We wanted to start by talking a little bit about a quote from Jonas Mikas that you've edited into the beginning of the film, where he says something like, we are not counterculture or subculture, we are the culture. And of course, the film is also dedicated to Mikas. And we really wanted to talk a little bit about how you arrived at this cinema-centric vision of the Velvet Underground, this interpretation of them that incorporated cinema as sort of a foundational element or the milieu out of which they came. Because it's really kind of a novel reading of the band and the history of the band. So um, Todd and I think maybe Alfonso, maybe you guys want to address this?
2: It's so nice to share the stage with these guys. And this is the first time my two editors have joined me on stage. So thank you all for making this possible. And of course, to share the stage with Amy Talvin is, goes without speaking. So I think with the subject of the Velvet Underground, for me, it wasn't a particularly novel connection to very quickly realize. I mean, just simply in the practical uh, challenge of how to visualize this film this is a band that doesn't have any traditional kind of materials associated with them as a band like most rock docs would have of concert footage and promotional material and all that kind of stuff they reside almost exclusively in the films of andy warhol but their relationships continue to sort of circle out from that most well-known relationship uh, in all the ways many of the ways that we we uh, describe in the film, but as you read more about the Velvet Underground, they they continue from then on. Uh, Pierre Helixer would do series at at the anthology or at uh, Cinematheque of avant-garde cinema and ask the you know Lou and John who were working with Lamont Young or John was with Tony Conrad and and um, and and uh, Ang- not Angus McCleese and say, would you just do some music to back the show before they were called The Velvet Underground. They were sort of the house band for avant-garde you know, uh, scre- uh, series of films. Pierre Helixer shot one of the very first experiment, you know, pieces of film on The Velvets, like literally before they put Maureen Tucker into the band and they threw her into this, this film that you see in our film called uh, Venus and Furs. But it goes on and on. Tony Conrad lived with Jack Smith and and John Cale worked with Tony on the soundtracks of Jack Smith films. And the first film that Andy Warhol filmed was a film of the filming of a Jack Smith film, Normal Love. You know, the, the circularity and the cross pollination of all of these things was really an, a, a case in point to the kind of rich, fertile culture that you described in your introduction, and it is really true about this time. So it was there for the taking. And so that was really my concept from the beginning is how to put images to this music and this story. We had the most extraordinary uh, amount, kinds of images to draw from. And then these guys, uh, we handed this collection of films that we collected with Brian O'Keefe my one of my uh, one of our two archive producers who really started curating the list of films, put them together in the Avid and basically put Adam off on a desert island with this movie, with this, with these films, while Fonzie and I went off to do my last feature film, Dark Waters. And then we came back. We had already shot the interviews with Ed um, and that sort of sets up, tees up, I guess, the process. But anything you've got, I would love to hear anything you like, what was that like, Adam?
1: <laughs> what did you um, find in the desert?
3: Yeah, well, I, I would start to say that the the greatest pleasure, aside from being able to listen to the Velvet Underground every single day, was being able to watch these films and um, go through them and excavate all the images that wind up in the film. To know that we had that as a tool, it's a really unique experience to be able to work with that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's just such an incredible feat, the way that, the, that you cut those, that trove of films, not only just to, it wasn't as if you were just saying, you know, you don't see little uh, title cards saying the title of the film, you know, Walden, Jonas Mikas here. You just sort of, well, you, the way the film works, the Velvet Underground film is that you kind of, they support the story that you're telling. They're there as, as the story. Not as a story unto itself of avant garde cinema or something, which is, I think, what this film makes it so different from other rock docs. Amy's looking at me.
1: She's listening
0: to you. Oh, okay. She's just listening to me.
1: But I am uh, curious, Amy, since you were there yes. amidst all sorry. of this, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you could tell us a little bit about this overlapping of avant garde music and film and the many other arts that were sort of commingling then. How did they feed into each other in your experience?
4: Well, I always use a quote by the poet John Giorno, who said, at this period from the end of the 50s to the end of the 60s, there were 200 people basically doing this. And they were poets and... Uh, painters and sculptors and filmmakers and dancers and choreographers and they all mixed it up so if you went to a party all 200 were there and that's all there was so that the real difference between what you imagine is when these films were shown everyone was happy if there were 10 or 12 people in the audience until Andy made the Chelsea Girls, and the Chelsea Girls was the first film that actually got on the variety charts. And I'm also
1: wondering, Ed, if you wanted to add something about finding, you know, your work as the DP on the Velvet Underground, and you also, you shot songs for Jella where you actually filmed Lou Reed and John Cale performing this tribute to Andy Warhol in the 90s. Based on your familiarity with them and their music, What kind of visual aesthetic or images did you think would best bring out their spirit while working on the dock?
5: When we started The Velvet Underground, I told Todd that I had done this concert, but that I never could, like, unearth the material. I went to Warner Brothers over, like, 30 years and said, you should put a DVD out of this, and nobody knew where it was. And then Todd made a decision of, that he was gonna, just people that were directly involved with the Velvet Underground from, I guess, 63, 64 to the early 70s would be part of the film. But I still wanted Todd to see my work. (laughs) So his producers, um, Moto Film, said, we'll help you find the material. And it was originally done for Channel 4, and uh, initial films in London, and had never really been shown here. Uh, it was, it, it was um, a performance done at St. Anne's, and then it went to BAM. So, miraculously, we found the original negative, and then we went back to Warner Brothers, and they finally found the original mix. And I had somebody that does sound restoration Reauthorize the sound and he said it's x's and o's i can sync it up to the concert and then i was able to you know recolor correct the original negative i found the a and b rolls so that was like such a pleasure so for me it was my gift to todd for doing the velvet underground where'd you find them
2: <laughs> tell them where you found them well yeah <laughs>
5: The lab, Duart, had closed in New York, and I told them, send me anything with my name on it, I'll, I'll take it. And lo and behold, it was in my loft. So I've been looking for the last three years, driving Carol Hepburn, the producer, one of the producers at uh, Modo Films, with letters and finding the people, and it was 400 feet from my bed. So that was that story. But visually, the idea I had back then was Lou said to me and John, we don't want any camera between us and the performance with the audience. And that gave me an idea. I said, well, can I shoot the rehearsals? Just wear what you would wear in the performance because I'll shoot one performance, but I won't have any cameras on the stage per se. And so that gave me total freedom with them, and then I could really set up dolly shots where I could be very intimate with them, and it could be and it's only those two creating the the music that it could be an interplay between them. And so I negated any audience, and really the point of view in the film is between the two of them. And I think that's what makes it work if it works for an audience because you're always the first audience when you see the piece and it's very minimal so
0: yeah it really does become a conversation at one point in the film between lou and john it seems to me songs for drella especially during that song the dream when he's reading uh warhol's diaries and there's, he's commenting on, or Warhol's commenting through John on how he doesn't like Lou and things like that. And there's this kind of tension. It's really, it's really, but it all comes out of the way that, that uh, you shot that, Ed, I think. Amy, we wanted to ask you about this moment in the Velvet Underground film when you're talking about Warhol's kiss in terms of extended time, this idea of extended time. And at the time, you mentioned uh, Theatre of Eternal Music and Dream Syndicate, whatever you want to call it, the Tony Conrad, Lamont Young, John Cale group. Is a, and I'm thinking about extended time as sort of a idea that was in the ether of the era. I don't know, but you might... I want to know if, what, if you think that's accurate or not.
4: Well, I don't know. I'd rather hear, hear Todd talk about that. But very quickly, this was a moment where everyone glommed on to the same uh, thing about how you'd structure a work. And it was this combination of, on the one hand, really aggressive minimalism. And minimalism meant one shape that was very big or stretched very long. And that was combined with the notion that This was not necessarily high art somehow this could be infused with pop as well and that was true I mean Warhol was the major figure and he was as much a minimalist as he was a pop artist and the minimalism part was the really aggressive part because who can watch John Giorno sleep for six hours
0: I assume you watched... I assume you sat through the whole film, no?
4: Yeah, but I'm a film critic.
2: (laughs) And sleep is full of different angles.
4: Many angles. Unlike Unlike,
2: unlike Empire. Empire, yeah. yeah.
4: Well, a lot of things happen in Empire. Lights go on and all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: Well, I kind of... Sorry, Todd, you wanted to say something? Oh, no. I I just
2: love that what it really... was. I mean, I think... It's minimalism, but it's also conceptual idea making. And it's the ideas that Warhol created that that circulated. People didn't have to literally sit through empire to discuss what the idea of empire would meant and how it challenged other conventions and assumptions and orthodoxies about what art is and how we define what an artistic experience is, the duration of that experience when we, we knew we wanted to trace these ideas in the film and make them as visual as possible. But still for me at least, and I'd love to hear if you guys have thoughts on this moment when Adam sort of built the first act of the film. It wasn't until, for me, hearing Lamont's drone music set to these images from the Warhol films where I knew this intellectually, but the sound and the image created your recognition of the idea, and you feel like you made the connection yourself as a viewer. And that I think that was always our goal in this film was to let the images and the music lead, not the words, not the oral histories, although we had amazing stories and oral histories from our subjects, but to feel like you were kind of discovering the music yourself, and the ideas that were circulating and and swapping from artist to artist during this time.
6: I mean, I think what was the tricky part for us is you want to convey the idea, but you can't really sit and watch a, a Empire or, a, or whatever, any warmer film, but you have to. So how long do you hold on those mm-hmm. images? How long of Le Mans Young music can you have it? Uh, to both have the experience but not be like, okay, what's like what's what's the limit? Which is true for any edit, you know, it's like where what's the limit when you cut, when you don't. So for us it's like when we don't. Uh, we had to like let's let's take to the limit. And we did test the limit as 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 much as we could and then we we kind of like take it back a little bit. But there was always for any kind of image or, or any kind of sound, because it takes a long time for the velvet to become a velvet in the film, but you need to experience everything that comes before. So, Are
0: you, I think you hold on the screen tests for the first couple, right, for the whole screen test?
6: Yeah. That's that's
0: pretty... It that takes a while. They're on there for a while.
1: Yeah, and actually, I, I wanted to ask about the screen test, too, because they truly transport you back to that time in some way. I think it's the confrontation, looking straight into their eyes, but also... The durational aspect of it is, doesn't feel contemporary and doesn't feel, it feels very out of place in a good way in a music documentary, right? right? This just holding, uh, can you talk about your decision to incorporate them in such a central way?
2: It's another example of something that I wanted, we wanted to try to do. We've all seen stills from the screen tests. We've all seen clips from the screen tests. Very, very, very few of us have sat through the duration of an entire reel of a screen test. And all of a sudden, you're experiencing these subjects who were talking about, in the initial cases, the childhoods of Lou and then John. And you're watching them witness the process of a documentary. Still, however, experimental the images that we're using, the Vanderbeek and the you know it's the, the images that are uh, next to John Cale's story or the Maya Darren images next to Lou Reed's story, but you feel like they're they're witnesses to, to a story being told about them, which both again creates a distance, but also a sense of that person's presence at the same time because they're breathing, they're flinching the smallest movement seems to correspond somehow to what's happening on the other screen but that's something you're doing which is also what happens in chelsea girls where the two parallel screens the viewer makes connectivity narrative meaning is produced by the viewer in watching them because every projection of chelsea girls is going to be slightly different so exactly when a swish pan you know rams across one frame and lands on Mary Off on the other, it's gonna be different from, from, from uh, showing to showing of that film. So you also feel like you're part of a living moment that's never gonna be the same.
5: I, I think the screen test for me, and I think for Todd we discussed, also helps us inform how we would shoot the interviews. So it's one light, um, one frame, And the other part of it was, for me, was the silk screens, Andy Warhol's photographic silk screens. So he picked different colored backgrounds, which also helped me decide about gels to light the characters in. So I think the combination of the screen test and Warhol's silk screens helped us incorporate that as a style that would fit the rest of the film. Is that true, Tom? (laughs) Well,
1: uh, kind of what I was referencing, this idea of incorporating these avant-garde elements of duration and, uh, and, you know, direct address, into the form of a music documentary. Todd, I feel like that's maybe a little bit symbolic of your work at large, where you're taking techniques that come from more experimental uh, ways of making movies, but you're folding them into a mainstream grammar of cinema, and it produces these very beautifully, you know, works that are beautifully doubled and have multiple access points. And so I was a little, uh, I wanted to know about your kind of, Formative experiences of avant garde cinema and popular cinema, and maybe how they've come together in your work?
2: I I went to my last four years of high school in Los Angeles. I went to a private school called Oakwood that I'd always heard about and kind of coveted and wanted to be able to. I liked my public school years a lot, except for junior high. Um, And then my parents let me go to Oakwood. It It was a sort of arts oriented private school. And there were some remar- just a, a lot of remarkable teachers, and it, it was a time where I think I felt ready to be exposed to a lot of new ideas. And there was a teacher named Chris Adam, Christina Adam, who was a fiction writer who taught uh, creative writing courses. But she was friends with experimental filmmakers, included in experimental film in that, in that class, and started to talk about questions about representations of reality. That we all presume to be the criteria for how we judge narrative film. And those were really productive questions to ask somebody at that age who were, you know, me and my friends, we talk about this. We take those questions home and talk a lot about them.
1: 15 or something? (laughs) Talking about representation. Well,
2: yeah, but but we we because we were given this opportunity by really, really interesting. Teachers who we really loved and knew they had, they did their own creative work outside of their what they taught, or parallel to what they taught. And so that sort of began it. But then uh, as I went to Brown University and there was a critical theory program there that was still called the Semiotics Program when I was at Brown in the beginning of the 80s. You know, there were things that were starting to happen in avant-garde filmmaking like Shirley, uh, like, um, um, oh, my God, I'm spacing out on the name, um, who, wrote, who made Orlando, um, Sally Potter's film. Orlando. Yes, Orlando. But her experimental film um, from, okay, we're all blocking. Uh, God, Thriller? No. Oh, thriller. 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 Yeah. Yes, thank you. It was a film that started to incorporate genre, references to genre in the filmmaking, which was a, a new sort of direction that the sort of anti-narrative, formalist filmmaking of the 70s in American avant-garde was starting to employ. And feminism was playing a role in that discourse and those questions. And this started to raise interesting ideas for me at that time and started and then there were things happening in narrative film like David Lynch's films that were drawing from experimental filmmaking in style in tone in kind of an irony about genre that he was employing in his movies and this created an interesting sort of dialogue for me between experimental you know filmmaking per se which was often in short shorter formats and feature filmmaking as a narrative format that would be, enter the market. And it just, for me, for Christine Bashan, for a lot of my peers that were coming out of college at this time, sort of opened up a lot of new questions about ways that our ideas and our questions about narrative and genre might find ways of of exercising themselves in these new, this new sort of cross, you know. and And this is true for just different moments in creative histories. You know, you always hear about the one that preceded yours as being the one you missed, the one that mattered, you know. But then you look back and you're like, no, that was, an, that was an important turning point for where we were at the time as well.
1: You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors.
0: The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday.
1: Sign up today at filmcomment.com.
4: I would love to ask you a question. May I ask you a question? What? When did you first see Derek Jarman, and how does he figure in that? Because, I mean, what we're not saying, because it's just so obvious, is that three quarters of the images on that screen in your film, which is the history of avant-garde film from 58 to 68, those are movies we would now call queer. And maybe we called them gay then, or we didn't call them anything that had to do with gender. Uh, But they were, and we knew that, I mean, so, Jarman.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I knew I knew Derek Jarman from earlier feature films, Carvaggio, um films that that came out when I was in still in college, and then we would meet Jarman. And and in the New Queer Cinema era, he was sort of a forefather as and as Jack, as um, uh, John Waters was as well, Kuchar Brothers, etc to the moment that we found ourselves in in the AIDS epidemic. But that exact point, Amy, was something we were really, really conscious about wanting to explore in this film. And It was something we talked about with our subjects in the interviews, but something we really wanted to be aware of because it sort of disappears, that context that the Velvet Underground really found themselves in and the Warhol factory and the avant-garde Culture of New York City, I think you see it most dramatically in the movie and maybe humorously when they go to Los Angeles. And the contrast between attitudes and assumptions about being outsiders, decidedly so, whether you were literally gay or lesbian or not. It was a an attitude, it was a way of looking at the world. People will attribute Baudelaire and Dandyism and Genet and all these predecessors of. We are thinking, gay, gay writers, and to things that were happening in pop and in camp that were more associated with the 1960s. And I, I think there are many ways to make that argument, but there was something really, really specific going on right then and there.
0: And Jack Smith, of course, too. Yes, and Jack Smith, of course. Major figure.
1: Well, something that we were thinking about. There's, I think, people of different generations on this panel of these different experiences of New York. And I'm curious to all of you here, you know, what made New York distinctive from other centers where experimental or avant garde arts movements were taking place, be it LA or San Francisco or other parts of the country? What made New York specific that fed into the art that we see in these in these films?
0: Amy question. Seems like an Amy
4: question. I, I, I don't know what, how to answer that. I mean, there's it's always the grit, been... the
0: grit of the city. What? The grit, I said.
4: No, there's always been this tension between the East Coast and the West Coast and the avant-garde film world, and the West Coast kind of felt that people on the East Coast didn't take them seriously, et cetera, because we were bad. You know, we knew we were outsiders, and we liked it and i don't know how else to put it well, anti-elite
1: elites i liked that line
4: <laughs> but
2: but one thing that's remarkable about it is that in the case of the velvet underground you have three of the members coming from long island you have one member coming from wales you have another member coming from germany and they all came together with very different backgrounds and very different determining sort of interest in music and art, and different desires in the outcome even. Uh, but they shared something about that sense of being outsiders.
4: And you have these two very important figures. You have Jonas Mekis, who's an immigrant from Lithuania, and you have Andy Warhol, who's first generation from this Polish working class family. And yeah. they make this art scene. That is really weird.
2: But, but, why they all knew why that group of that crazy band of people, all sort of knew to reject the sort of mainstream counterculture and its sort of more heteronormative aspects right that you 'd see in the West, particularly in the west coast, but everywhere that that unified instinct to say no to things, I find really. Inexplicable, I, I still can't quite explain it, but I think the, the setting of New York City fostered that, the attraction to the factory fostered that, and a weird interest in collapsing high and low art fostered that, you know, all of these concurrent things. But just the way Mary Warnoff would say when she'd go talk about LA, they were homophobic and we were homosexual. And she wasn't lesbian, but she knew what that meant. That was an attitude, and that was a way of seeing the world.
1: I'm curious if uh, Afonso and Adam, in the process of sifting through so much archival footage and composing this portrait, what did you sort of learn about New York? Uh, or, you know?
0: Well, Adam was telling me that he's
3: I'm live, live from in... Coney Island, so yeah. I didn't learn too okay. much.
1: So... <laughs> but... But what Kinda did you knows, learn about the New the, York of the past, the you know? Or, or maybe it made you see the city in a new way? or? Yeah.
3: Um, I don't know. I, I, I think what happened there, what happened with Andy and with Jonas, I, I heard someone say in an interview once that some people are not, like the culture is not ready for some people, so some people build their own culture and then drag the rest of the culture along with them into their space. And I think that that is what happened here. Um, And I think that what I could say is that everything that I love about New York can probably be traced back to Andy and what he did. I grew up in the punk rock scene here in New York, and that doesn't exist without what Andy did. And I think... um, I don't know if it's the first place in American history maybe it is where people celebrated their own strangeness Um, and it was nice as a kid growing up here to have a place to feel like I could do that Um, and I think that that's where that starts so yeah
2: I'm also I want to ask you one quick thing that we were talking about last night about Iggy Pop Yeah. because these guys were made the Gimme Danger film with Jim Jarmusch. And it's how the two of them... Fonzie and I have been making cutting movies together for a while. But Fonzie introduced me to Adam because of this really great experience they had working on that film together. And we were just talking last night at dinner about Iggy and about something... A kind of raw intelligence and a kind of understanding of sexual deviance and shit. I'm going to let you... If you feel like it, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I just thought that was really interesting what you were saying.
3: it's funny that you say that. I was also going to say that punk rock leads back to Andy, but it also leads back to Iggy as well. And the Velvets, obviously. And the the Velvets as well, but also that... um, Iggy didn't turn his back on the audience. Iggy ran into the audience, and you didn't know what was going to happen. Um, And Iggy embraced danger the way John Cale... I think John Cale philosophically speaks about danger. He said something like uh,
0: people on the West Coast were... Yeah, uh, hippies were were avoiding danger. the importance of danger. Yeah,
3: yeah. But Iggy really brought the danger, you know? Um, And sort of like crossing out into the audience and including the audience into uh, this sort of like depraved moment where you had no idea. Maybe you would get punched. Maybe you would get kissed or something like that. yeah, I feel like that's how I would describe being in New York when when I was growing up. Well, so I, I Iggy, that, you know, it's like maybe you get punched, maybe you get kissed. Right, but yeah. there's a
0: difference here between going to a student show and going to a Dead show or something. You know, like you might get uh, kissed at a Dead show or something by somebody you don't want to get kissed by. Before or you got punched, you're probably but not. not get, like you might kiss. get punched in, in the you know at some point. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I think that that oppositional attitude of the of of punk can be traced back in some way to this it could be it's a uh, to this new york scene i know that in the film you talk a lot about this um oppositional kind of defining themselves in opposition to and uh it reminded me of the tony conrad jack smith henry flint protests like uh down with uh, what did the poet sign say demolish art no more museums and they would walk around and i think 1963 these things happened and these guys were you know led directly into the velvet underground in many ways um but i'm interested to hear and I'll, oh yeah which yeah also reminds me of conrad himself uh when the flicker showed at the 1966 uh new york film festival i think read a, a two page uh document of protest against the festival even though he was about to show his film there <laughs> but, uh, anyway, so I think that this uh, lineage of n- negativity. And that film
1: is showing next week, oh, yeah, here. And
0: as I've- part of the uh, Amos Vogel of centenary retrospective. Wow. Yeah, next Thursday. Don't miss The Flicker by Tony Conrad. A great, great film. Um, but I kind of want to ask, I guess, I think, I want to ask Amy if what she thinks about this idea of opposition, and this kind of negative creativity as being like a defining feature of New York, avant-garde. Oh, I don't have to, we can gas somebody else.
4: I abstain from that question. All
0: right. <laughs> we'll move on to the next question.
4: Well, maybe
1: I can ask Amy something that, something you said in the documentary. Amy, I emailed you as soon as I saw the film because I was so enamored of it and I said, you know, this is what I need to be doing. I'm young and in New York. Like, I need to be doing what these guys were doing. Uh, but you also offered some sobering comments in the in the film. And you said it wasn't, the factory wasn't a very friendly place for women. Uh, and there were kind of outside standards that women uh, and people had to live up to. And, and the documentary does touch upon some some aspects that, you know, weren't as utopian as, as uh, they seem. Look,
4: it wasn't a good place for men either. It wasn't a good place for anyone who didn't have a very, very secure sense of themselves when they went in there. I mean, what can I, uh, else can I say about that? Because I'm sure that Eric Anderson felt he didn't measure up in the way that I felt I didn't measure up to Nico. Um, You know, it was, the thing about the Warhol factory was that people came because they thought Warhol could make them famous because he had cameras. Um, And what those cameras then revealed was every single wound in their narcissism. And you can see that in the screen tests and that's why they're compelling. Uh, And Warhol's great gift was to make people face their own narcissism. And for some people that was not, uh, they couldn't survive it. So Jane Holter and I survived it fine because we were nice, pushy, well-brought-up New York girls and this wasn't going to bother us, but a lot of people didn't, you know?
1: I am curious about what Clint brought up in terms of this oppositional nature of that scene. I am curious what you all think happened or endures of the political legacy of that moment too, because it seems to me that it was a moment where, in which whether intentionally or not, uh, art just felt very effortlessly political, maybe because of this marginalized identity that these uh, artists carried. And I think their legacy or their influence eventually maybe became uh, divested from that uh, oppositional side or political side of things. It became sort of more commercialized and uh, more palatable. And and so I'm curious, you know, how you think, and broadly how you think that we interact with their legacy now.
2: Well, I, I feel like there was not an overt uh sort of orthodoxy of political discourse they rejected that that w- that was not what interested them it was not interesting interesting to them about bob dylan and by the time bob dylan was i think very interesting to them he had already rejected that period of his own uh songwriting the protest or first protest era but I, I feel that when a, when a band, I think something that they did that is radical and continues to be radical, but also made all these other genres of music possible. And it's a lot about what we're talking about in terms of, and, and even what we're talking about in what, what challenges people face within the factory sort of social um, politics, is that they talked about incredible vulnerability and pain, and self-destructiveness, and the desire to nullify one's life. The, the, the way that we, that we have to, that everybody feels this in their life. And with everything that was happening in the 1960s, such an incredible, and let's just leave it at popular music alone, and jazz, and R&B. Very few people were talking about this. There was a tremendous, or almost obligation to speak affirmatively about life. In the 1960s, well, the Velvet Underground were not speaking affirm- affirmatively about life, and it wasn't politic It was not in a political discourse, but that was very easy to apply to all kinds of senses of political ideas and ways of wanting to change society. And what happened with Lou Reed shortly after the Velvet Underground, even when he tried to sort of become more. Succ- commercially successful in those last records, was he realized he had also started another movement, which was the Glitter Rock movement that started to question sexuality and sexual identity. And he decided, you know what? I'm gonna let David Bowie produce my my groundbreaking second solo endeavor It becoming the most successful record of Lou Reed's Reed's career uh, commercially. But, and, and became more of a liberationist theme. You know, we're coming out, out of our closets, onto the street, you know. Uh, but it was also completely indebted in using the factory years and those experiences and those chapters of stories in songs like Walk on the Wild Side, of course. So this is political. <laughs> this is, these are political movements that are being expressed as movements of art and identity and sexual um, deviance.
0: Yeah, as Devika was saying that, I was thinking about like Lou Reed's solo career, the trajectory of it, how he kind of tried to become commercial at first, and then kind of embraced his weirdness and his you know idiosyncrasies, and then kind of just went all out, just spent the rest of his career kind of digging deeper into those dark places. Ed, I kind of wanted to ask you all the way down there at the end of the stage, at the end of Songs for Drella, you have a little coda where you have a promo for Berlin that you shot in seven, in, when the album came out. Um, I wonder if you could tell us the story of that. Well,
5: uh, I had met Lou 17 years before I had done uh, Songs, which was 1990, so it was 1974. And that experience was very weird for me because I didn't really know who Lou Reed was. And he came up to the tripod, it was a very small crew, and he kicked it. And I grabbed onto the camera and in my panic, and he just smiled and walked back to the microphone. And he said, do it like Andy. <laughs> Which is funny because Todd reminded me, he said, Well Andy never shot hand hold but I guess he hand his bowlax, yeah. So when I got to know Lou a little better when we started songs, I said to him, Do you have any do you remember you when we did the Berlin promo video back then? We didn't know what they were back then. Um you kicked my tripod and said, do it like Andy. And he looked at me and said, I don't remember much from back then, and walked away. <laughs> so that, that was my introduction to Lou Reed. But you, know, I, you know, I've been thinking about that question about LA or the West Coast and the East Coast, because I was around, I'm old enough to be around back then and maybe this is a simplistic idea, but the way I've always felt about the West Coast versus the East Coast, is the street gives us our equality. Rich, poor, smart, or dumb, we all face each other in the street. Where California, your economic and social position positions you where you are. And so, you know... I found, and also that we're closer to Europe. So there was more of an acceptance of different ethnicity and difference in people that had allowed a cultural to flourish that was different because we accept differences because we know we're all different. Where people that end up in LA, even New Yorkers I've known over the years, they become part of LA. Whatever that is, you know, whatever their, you know, yoga instructors about, or their, you know, fringe ideas. And I think it also has something to do, and maybe this is another weird idea of mine. I think New Yorkers live in their head, where California people live in their environment. You know, it's about their pool and how good their life is. Now, I know this is unfair because Todd grew up in L.A., so you're an <laughs> exception. But you left L.A.
2: Yeah, I don't want it. But I also think it's important to not like I I hated L.A. when I grew up as a, there as a kid. I find L.A. an increasingly fascinating, complicated city with such unique diversity within it, mostly due to its Latin culture and and an, and a way that many classes of people can coexist in a city that big, which is harder and harder to say about New York or Manhattan, which is a very become a very elite city for economic reasons. But but that's just but that's just and that we went to Sarge's deli, me and Brian today. And we're like, where are the fucking delis in New York City, man? And L.A. has restaurants that have been in operation since they started in the 19-teens, still running without any interruption in there. I'm like, that's an amazing thing for a city. We we love old establishment. Can I ask
0: Fonzie a question?
2: Yeah, of course. No, you may Please. not. <laughs>
1: I'm kidding.
0: We just want to make it clear that nobody's insulting L.A. We, we love um, L.A. We're like I just, Randy Newman. Because
2: I just think, you know, look, this is, this is my first documentary. This is your... Was it your second documentary? No. Third. And the, the adage about an editor really being a writer of a documentary. I mean, it's it, it, and even though every documentary is different in the way it's structured and what it's drawing from, what its raw materials are, and all those things. And, that's, and this one had its own unique sources of material that we drew from, just aside from the interviews. But, but I felt that was just such an amazing. That's we've made movie a lot of movies together, you and I. But this was different. I'm just curious what, how that, you know, what that was for you, and also how we did how we, how that was for us in your view, or what that was.
6: I mean, I think because when we do the features, we do or TV like with Mildred Pierce, there is a set. I mean, the structure is already set up. And we go through the process that I watch the footage and I do my version. You have the footage and I do it then. Yeah. But there's always, there's no I mean, we can, I think, play with structure and choose performance, but the goal is all is, is there. We know the right. beginning, the middle, and then with documentary is very freeing because even though there is a structure because the, the band existed and then it didn't exist anymore. So we knew that kind of path. But how do you tell the story? Then we are discovering at the same time with Adam, who, because he was, he was working for a whole year by himself, he set the structure of, of, of this, the film so beautifully. And the two of us came, and we worked together. And actually, from the moment we met and started working together, you told me, I really like to edit. Are you okay with it? It's like, absolutely. But then you never did. But this time, we said, now you do it. Right. So we had I had an Avid. Adam had an Avid. And you had Avid. So we, we sort of, I think the communication became three editors talking. Uh, so the kind of the structure, I'm the editor, you're the director, and yeah. I think it kind of broke down, and we were just functioning at the same level at all times. That's how it felt to me. Wow. Thank you for acknowledging my editing.
2: <laughs> but the amazing, thing, the amazing thing is that, I mean, COVID happened. When Fonzie and I finally could full put our full attention on there's a beginning of it was 2020 we were in LA Adam was in New York we kept dream we kept our plans were to keep meeting up and physically and then COVID hit and Fonzie and I had been in the same room working and we were basically like quarantined together with this movie and it was just like okay let's just stay working on this movie in quarantine
6: forever so we actually (laughs) measure six feet from each other we had, like, a, my wife had cut a little rope. It's like, the, I want to make sure. And we had it on the floor, so we knew there was six feet from each other the whole time.
3: I was very socially distanced. Yeah,
0: I like this image of Adam sitting in a basement by himself for, a year, full,
6: for one full year,
0: <laughs> yeah. just sort of plugged into his computer. Um, I think we have to wrap now, guys, unfortunately.
1: But I I do want Amy to have the last word. Yeah. If
0: No <laughs> is her last <laughs> word, she says. I think that's appropriate, Amy, given her...
1: As a scenester from that time, I do want to ask you, just as a closing question, what your experience was of watching the completed film and what it brought back to you.
4: Oh my god it was it was like being there. I mean, that's why I guess I wonder what people who weren't there will make of it, but for me. In a way, this was the formative period of my life. It was the most thrilling period of my life in many ways. And the movie is absolutely that. So uh, yeah.
0: Well, maybe this panel will take take over and become the most thrilling period of your life. (laughs) That's, That's our hope. Well, thank you guys all so so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, and thank you for your work on this on this remarkable film. And Ed, thank you so much for the restoration of Songs for Drella. And please go see these films, and go
2: see the picture. Thank you. Velvet
1: opens on October thirteenth, so you you can catch it like very soon if you haven't already, or rewatch it. Woo.